0: Let's say I was with the clan, which I'm not, for the record. Well, let's yeah. say I was at the clan, and I'm responsible for managing the pension fund. I don't know if they have one, or not, but yeah. and I said, "Hey, we we like this idea of ESG, but not so much the S. Yeah, we don't care about society. You know, we don't care about equality, but yeah, environment great, governance. Yeah, we got a structure, so that's important to us. So, <laughs> could, could we get like just E G without the S? That, that's yeah. I. Uh, I
1: it, it's funny. There, there are funds like that. I mean, uh, you know, you've-,
0: <laughs> you've likely heard terms like ESG investing, sustainable investing, impact investing, socially responsible investing, and others. But are they all the same? Today's guest is the head of ESG at Research Affiliates. We're going to tackle some important questions. Does ESG lead to better returns for investors? If you don't invest in ESG-tilted portfolios, are you against the environment or social and governance goals? And who determines whether a portfolio or investment is ESG compliant? Is it too subjective? All that and much more on this episode of Mostly Money. This is Mostly Money, and I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. My guest today is Ari Polychronopoulos, who is the head of ESG, At Research Affiliates, a very well known firm globally for its smart beta and asset allocation work. Over $170 billion worldwide is managed using Research Affiliates strategies. Ari is a partner at the firm and focuses on smart beta and ESG integration. He's responsible for multiple product lines, including the RAFI Fundamental Index, multi factor ESG, and related climate transition strategies. Ari, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Preet. It's uh, it's great to talk to you. It's been been a while, but uh, I'm happy to
0: happy to be here. Yeah, it has been a long long time. So our paths crossed professionally uh over a decade ago, I think. And you know, there's there's one thing I want to to talk about. Actually, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. One is you've got deep background in the financial services, and when we first met, you were brand new at Research Affiliates, I think. Yeah, or within the last the year or two or yeah. something like that, and right before that, uh, you were at a company called Indymac, which went under, which no longer exists, right? Yeah, yeah it uh,
1: it I guess has the, the the title. It was one of the first banks that was taken over by the U.S. government during the, uh, the global yeah, financial that's crisis. Right.
0: Yeah. And I remember at the time you telling me the story of what was happening. Because just to put this into context, so this was just a few years after the great financial crisis, and it was still fresh on everyone's minds. And I had this opportunity to talk to this guy who had lived right through it, like right on the ground, what was happening in the US, the epicenter of what was happening. So, and I remember when you were telling me the story, I was like, my jaw was on the ground. I forget the details because it's been like, you know, 13 years or whatever. But can you walk us through, first of all, what did you do at IndyMac? What was your role there? Yeah. And what happened during the great financial crisis?
1: Yeah. So IndyMac was a mortgage bank. So basically the role of the bank was to, uh, as, as a lender, um, you would uh, uh, want to buy a house. You need to take out a mortgage. You would... Uh, uh, Indie Bank would obviously give you a loan, um, and the my role at the bank was I was on an analyst on a trading desk that was responsible for hedging what was called the bank's MSR or mortgage servicing rights portfolio. Um, basically, what that is is when you take out a mortgage, there's really three components to a mortgage from from really kind of a, a, a fixed income perspective or a cash flow perspective. There's kind of your principal payment. Uh, that uh, makes up part of your mortgage. There's your interest payment that you pay for, for the loan you've taken. And then there's what's called the mortgage servicing rights. Um, that's usually like a quarter of a basis point of your loan that goes to the company that's actually servicing your mortgage. So sending out statements and, and collecting uh, payments and things like that. And so the bank would uh, would do what lots, pretty much every mortgage bank was doing at the time is they would p- package up uh, uh, fixed income products, basically principal only pools of mortgages, and they strip out the interest only portions, and they would sell those off to different investment banks. And we were we would retain the mortgage servicing rights because we had a big mortgage servicing business, and. So our job was to hedge that mortgage servicing rights portfolio because uh, essentially what you had to do is you had to mark to market that portfolio every day. Um, And so based on how interest rates would move, the value of that portfolio could swing by millions of dollars. Uh, we, We were, I think at the time. Uh, had a mortgage servicing right portfolio of a few billion dollars so you could have huge fluctuations and so we were buying you know uh, different uh, fixed income swap contracts futures contracts things like that to to basically hedge out the the, what's called the interest rate risk in that portfolio and as the as the i guess the credit quality of any began to deteriorate going into the uh, global financial crisis essentially what was happening is you know uh, our counterparties were getting more and more afraid of, of basically the company defaulting. You know, the loans we're collecting, the loans we were selling. Um, you know, uh, as as not only an EMAC, but pretty much every bank was, you know, at the height of the crisis, crisis basically lending to anybody who wanted to borrow to buy a house, regardless of credit quality. Obviously, there was a lot of bad debt on the books. Um, and so, you know, it was getting just more and more difficult to hedge our portfolio because <laughs> really at the end there, we couldn't even find counterparties. You know, we'd have different inv- investment banks calling us up and saying, you know, Hey, um, you know, our compliance group says we can't trade with you anymore. We have to un- unwind all of our trades. <laughs> and, uh, it just got to be like this really scary situation where, you know, towards the end, we were basically not even, uh, able to fully hedge the portfolio. It was, kind of moving up and down by millions of dollars a day. Uh, the credit quality of the company started to deteriorate and, and, and that eventually caused basically a run on the bank, you know, uh, people kind of showing up, uh, the bank did have a commercial bank side of the business and people were showing up saying, give me my deposits. And, you <laughs> know, once that starts, you know, it just gets, it gets, you know, I remember going into work sometimes and there'd be lines because we had a bank at the, on the ground floor of our building and I was up on like the fourth floor or whatever. And uh, there'd be lines of people around the corner just waiting for the bank to open so they can uh, go in and withdraw their deposits. And they'd be screaming at you like, yeah. like you're the devil, basically, trying to spit at you as you're walking in, trying to go to work. <laughs> and it's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to do my job. I'm trying to hedge <laughs> yeah. a portfolio here.
0: I'm, I'm sorry. but uh, <laughs> when, Do you remember <laughs> when you first had like that, that holy shit moment? Uh, during that time in the great financial crisis, where you're like, man, this is, we're all going to lose our jobs. Like, did, when when yeah. did that occur to you?
1: So, I would probably say, um, so I left Indy Mac in about uh, late June of 2008. Um, and uh, I would probably say about uh, a couple months before that, uh, things, you know, you started noticing the writing on the wall. Um, and uh, and started I started looking for a new job. You know, IndyMac was eventually taken over by the government, and then it was uh, sold and rebranded as One West Bank. So it actually still exists today, mm-hmm. um, in another form. Um, and uh, to my knowledge, it's still you know a, a mortgage bank and and uh, and, a, and a and a commercial bank as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was it was I would say a couple months before I. I turned to some of the other people on the desk and said, hey, it's probably time for us to start (laughs) looking for for something else.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. And uh, yeah, so shortly after that, you ended up at uh, Research Affiliates. And I remember being down at the offices, beautiful offices down in Newport Beach. Are you guys still in Newport?
1: Yep. We are uh, still uh, here in Newport Beach.
0: And I remember... Walking into the reception, and under this glass case was, I think it was a first edition of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Yeah. It's a cool office, and I have a lot of respect for uh, Rob Arnott and uh, everyone at the firm. Really, I miss uh, working with you guys back in the day. But in any case, uh, you're here to talk about, uh, you know, what you've been focusing on lately as you know a new partner of the firm. Congratulations on that! Thank you. You're heading up ESG, and this has been exploding in terms of headline coverage, uh, demand from investors, some pension funds need to divest from oil investments. Yeah. And so it's, it's huge and that's why you're here, you're going to sort of help explain what, what is going on in the world of ESG, what it is, what it means to investors. So let's, let's start with the very basics and what does ESG stand for? So, yeah, ESG
1: uh, stands for uh, environmental, social and governance uh, investing um, at, at a very high level. Uh, if you want to define it, it's, it's really uh, an approach to managing assets where uh, as an investor, you explicitly acknowledge the relevance of, of these factors, these environmental, social and governance uh, factors in your investment decisions. And it's, it's a really broad area. So when you say it's even something like environmental factors, what does that mean? It actually means... A lot of things um, it's really any any theme that pertains to to the natural world and, and it deals with concepts like climate change uh, resource depletion pollution deforestation biodiversity these are all kind of themes within the the environmental space um, on the social side, you're looking at uh, themes that affect the the lives of humans, like human rights, child labor, uh, employee relations, human resources issues, uh, diversity. Uh, these are all the types of things you deal with uh, when when you're looking at the social aspect of ESG investing. And then finally, governance is, is really uh, issues inherent to uh, business models, like uh, board makeup, executive pay, lobbying practices, bribery, corruption, and so um, you you. You literally have, you know, hundreds of themes within ESG and an ESG investment strategy um, could be uh, something that's very specific, like a strategy, an investment strategy that focuses on gender diversity. Uh, or it could be very broad by saying, hey, I want a broad ESG strategy that that uh, invests in companies that that rank really well on a ESG perspective holistically. Um, so so it's, it's, it's really kind of a broad space. And when you say ESG, you're, you're talking um really about a lot of things. And, and it's something that means really different things to different people. Um, if you're talking to a large pension fund concerned about climate change, uh, they're likely going to have a very different idea of what a good ESG company is compared to a faith-based organization looking to invest based on their values. And so it, it varies quite a bit.
0: In any sort of newish space, terms often get conflated or confused. So can you explain what sustainable investing, SRI, socially responsible investing and impact investing? They all seem to be in the same world, but they do have different meanings. Can you explain the differences?
1: Yeah. Um so let's start with SRI. So so they're all they all kind of mean the same thing and they're often used interchangeably. Um SRI or socially responsible investing is kind of what I'd say is like I would term maybe first generation type of, of ESG investing, um, you know, SRI investing actually goes all the way back to the to the late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, you could see there's, uh, there's, you know, you could read about um, different kind of Quaker and Methodist churches forbidding their members from investing in the slave trade or buying sin stocks, uh, guns, liquor, alcohol, uh, things like that, tobacco. And so SRI is really more of uh, thinking about, you know, excluding a lot of a type of invest uh, about of type of companies you wouldn't want to invest in, based on what they do. Um, that's really evolved more recently into what we now kind of call ESG, where you're looking a little bit more quantitatively. Um, you're not just excluding certain industries, uh, but you're actually um, looking at uh, a lot of different factors within those themes to kind of score a company or rate a company. Um, And it's it's much more what we call an integrated approach. Um, Impact investing is actually an entirely different uh, type of strategy where uh, an impact investing is where you're going to only invest in areas that have a positive impact on the environment or society. Um, And so an impact investor might be investing in certain projects. um, like uh, perhaps uh, a microfinancing project in a third world country to get you know small businesses up and running, and, and expect to get a return, but probably not expecting to get the type of return they would get if they were just going to invest in the market. Um, and so, impact is a little bit different than than your traditional SRI and and what we now call uh, ESG.
0: Now, uh, it, it seems like there's a whole bunch of different factors that you've talked about. Um, so, how do how do ESG investment strategies tackle these themes. So if I say, yes, I want to be an ESG investor because seven of those things that you just talked about, they, they mean something to me and they're aligned with my values. How do I actually implement that in a portfolio?
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Great question. Um, so, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, as I previously mentioned, there's no universally accepted definition of ESG. Um, and so you know even if you do a quick Google search um, on ESG ETFs, for example, you're going to find everything from uh, climate specific funds, clean water funds, funds that uh, uh, that uh, um, try to encourage minority empowerment, faith-based funds, gender diversity. So a- as an investor, I think step one is determining what are your ESG preferences uh, and then second, uh, trying to, Um, find an investment strategy that's aligned with those preferences. Um, I think, uh, you know, more so than really anywhere else in the investment space, and and you should always do your homework when you're investing in something, but um, the ESG space is just, it's just so broad and there's just so many different options. It's really understanding what you want to accomplish uh, through your investments and then finding an investment strategy that's aligned with that.
0: My understanding is that there's a number of different ways that uh, maybe an index provider might say, "Well, here's something that is yeah. aligned with ESG," and it yeah. could be through negative screening, where they say yeah. we're going to exclude certain companies based on criteria, or others might say, "Well, we'll place more weight on companies that you know um, hit certain objectives or targets." So, can you talk yeah. about what are those different? metrics that are used those ratings that are used that that will allow someone to say yes this company has a good esg rating and this one doesn't
1: yeah so so when you're implementing an esg strategy as you mentioned there's a couple ways to go about it so we can let's start there um You mentioned divestment, and that's that's kind of the the easiest approach to ESG investing is it's it's what's called uh, I'm going to exclude in companies or I'm just going to divest from these companies. I'm not going to own them. Typically, you see uh, investment strategies that divest from things like fossil fuels, for example, where there will be no uh, oil companies or energy companies in the portfolio that uh, that uh, are using fossil fuels or divesting from uh, weapons or coal or tobacco. Um, And so that's really the the simplest route. Second is what we call integration, ESG integration, where, where you might uh, say, I'm going to upweight companies that rank really well from an ESG perspective. I'm going to downweight companies that rank poorly from an ESG perspective. And, and the benefit of the ESG integration approach is that um, by not excluding the companies, um, a lot of investment managers say, "Well, I can actually, you know, influence change at a company. I can vote my proxies. I can uh, get members on the board that might be sympathetic to some of these ESG issues." And so, um, we've seen this movement away from uh, just broad-based exclusions into more ESG integration and what we call engagement, where you're actually engaging with the company and trying to uh, influence change um, uh, through your through your voting rights and 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 uh, through uh, your interactions with the company itself. Now. When you're trying to determine what makes a good ESG company, and this is probably the, the biggest kind of area of in terms of uh, issues associated with ESG is, is how do you determine what a good company is. Um, typically, the way you do this is uh, you can work uh, with what we call ESG ratings agencies. So there's a lot of different ratings companies in, out there that provide ESG data. Um, that data is based on a lot of different data sources. So starting from the beginning, typically you'll have uh, large companies that provide sets of ESG disclosures each year, um, similar to their annual filings or in financial statements. But uh, unlike financial statements, uh, there isn't a single uniform framework for disclosing ESG risks and opportunities. For example, I guess the most popular framework is what's called the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative. About 70% of publicly traded companies report using this framework, Uh, but there's some other popular ones as well. There's uh, SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Boards, that has their own framework for companies on how do they report. Um, There's one uh, called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is more about uh, environmental issues. And so... Starting from the beginning, it's okay. These companies are going to report what type of framework are they going to use? And then you have the data providers that are collecting a lot of those disclosures and reports, and also uh, doing interviews with the company uh, looking for other publicly available information to come up with an ESG rating. And when you look at, we, I wrote some research last year on, on ESG ratings providers, and basically that's a field where there's, you know, I identified over 70 different ESG ratings providers. Um, and so as an individual, As an investment manager, if I'm going to create an ESG fund, the question is now, okay, once I've defined what my ESG preferences are going to be, I got to go out and get the data. Who am I going to get the data from? Uh, All of these different ESG data providers have different methodologies for how they rate companies. (laughs) And you can get some very different results um, by just looking at the the data from from these different companies.
0: Let's say I was managing a lot of money and let's say I was responsible to some investors and they said, hey, we want ESG. And if let's say I had a particular investment philosophy, could I just go rating shopping and say, all right, well, I will pick this rating because that is most in line with my investment philosophy and I would have to make the least amount of change, but I can keep my investors happy because I can say, hey, look at me, I'm ESG. Is it like, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you see those little health you know those little check marks that say, "Hey, this has been approved by this, this, yeah. and this ratings company that says it's super healthy for you if you buy this." Right? Like, is it just a matter of like pay to play? Is there like shopping around of agencies? How does this work?
1: Yeah, um, so I'll I'll talk about kind of our our experience when we launched our first ESG index strategy several years ago. Um, you know, I would say it's a little bit more than that. I, I wouldn't say it's just kind of a, a Pay to play scheme or anything like that, most of these ESG ratings providers will have uh, really well thought out methodologies. I don't, you know, the, some of the leading providers, the MSCIs, Sustainalytics, ISS, or a few of them of the world, they have very well thought out methodologies. But again, these methodologies aren't um, uniform. There's no Regulatory agency that says this is, you know, the framework you should use for determining what a good ESG company is, and so they're all going to be sub- a little bit subjective and a little bit different based on the methodologies that they've developed, um, and and so that's kind of, you know, the 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 issue uh, with with the ESG ratings agencies. So when we launched our first ESG strategies, we basically did uh, our research team did a, did a pretty long project where we looked at several different ESG ratings providers. We got uh, uh, trial data from all of them, read through their methodology documents, looked at the data, and, and really ended up choosing the one that uh, we thought we were most comfortable with. And we were looking for things like do they have broad data coverage? Do they cover a lot of companies so that we can make sure we can build a broadly diversified investment strategy? Um, is there, you know, kind of any, is there? Data quality good in terms of how they're kind of sourcing the data and delivering the data, and, and does their methodology make sense to us? And so, you know, for you know full disclosure, for our own investment strategies, we use a company called ISS, um, and that's the company that we settled on. Um, but even when looking at the different companies, you see some some interesting idiosyncrasies, uh, some interesting differences between the companies. Uh, a good example is um, we have a index strategy that excludes energy companies. And when you look at a company like Toyota, for example, um, you would think what's when you think Toyota, you think uh, auto manufacturer. Uh, It doesn't seem very controversial. I probably wouldn't exclude it as a as a energy company. So some of the data providers don't exclude Toyota. Some of the data providers do exclude Toyota because they have a 20 percent stake in a subsidiary that engages in thermal coal mining. So now the question is, you know, this kind of gets into the different methodologies. You know, do you consider the ownership in a subsidiary it means that Toyota itself should also get excluded? Um, and so there's all these kind of little, you know, <laughs> secrecies. <laughs> well, yeah, to look I can at- think
0: of a, a perfect example, which would be hey, look, here's a transportation company that, you know, it's not a sin company. And you're like, oh, yeah, they just like move stuff from place to place. What do they move? Just guns. Yeah. <laughs> so that would yeah. be and- uh, for by some screens that we like, well, that's a no-no. And other screens like, well, it's just transportation. But that's kind of like to your point.
1: Yeah. And typically the way we deal with that is we use kind of a revenue-based model for determining if a company is engaging in in what we call a controversial activity so if a company's deriving more than let's say five percent of its revenue or ten percent of its revenue from either the production the sale the distribution of a con of guns for example you know we might exclude it uh, an interesting case is walmart walmart gets excluded from similar indices because they have uh, a significant part of their re- revenue is uh, from selling guns and uh, yeah. you wouldn't think that but You know that that it does fail that screen because uh, because they do sell. I think it's more than five percent of their revenue or something like that comes from the sale of guns.
0: The conversation with Ari Polikronopoulos continues in just a minute. But first, a few thank yous to listeners who left comments on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Cedric Nola, Jay Barshop. Medi Bickery, Andrew Lutz and Omar Mo93 all listeners from the United States where oddly the podcast has a higher rating than in Canada. But to everyone who leaves ratings and comments on Apple Podcasts, I appreciate them and I do read them all. I produce the podcast for you, the listeners. And just a heads up, I may be taking a hiatus on the podcast towards the end of summer really need to put my head down and finish up my dissertation and hopefully defend it in the fall it really should have been done by now so i'm going to turn my focus onto that to really get it buttoned up but for now back to the conversation with ari polychronopoulos from research affiliates So when it comes to, so here's another analogy, <laughs> there's this old uh, movie, it's called The Big Hit, not super popular, but kind of like a little cult action comedy movie, and there's this one scene where this guy, they want to um, place a phone call, but they don't want to get traced, so they had this trace buster. And then they've also thought ahead and they thought, well, in case the people on the other end of the line have a way of identifying if you've got a trace buster and they can still trace you, we've got this trace buster buster. And it it was just this little thing. So the question is, is there an ESG ratings ratings agency? Because if there are so many different ratings, isn't there going to be some kind of value to have some kind of unification uh, because this seems quite problematic. It seems like this is an area where you know people could get exploited or they could you know pick a, a, a ratings agency that gives you different results. And the reason I ask this is because I know that you've done some work on this. You've done some work on measuring the returns of uh, portfolios with these different ratings agencies screens applied. And I was wondering if you could talk about the differences in returns between providers. Yeah,
1: yeah. So- to answer the first part of your question, there, there isn't a single kind of global framework for determining kind of an ESG rating, or there isn't a, a oversight uh, board in any country that oversight oversees ESG ratings. What we are starting to see, though, is um, some uniformed regulations around ESG disclosures, which is a good thing. I think that's step one in the right direction. Uh, for example, in the UK, um, they've uh, recently uh, passed a law where Basically, all large companies, uh, public and private, have to um, disclose uh, climate issues, climate risks and opportunities, al- according to the, what's called the TCFD standards. Um, they also have mandated that uh, large companies and all investment managers start uh, uh, start uh, offering mandatory disclosures on the sustainability of their investment strategies. And uh, they're also developing something in the EU called the EU taxonomy, which is basically a global framework for, for reporting on Uh, ESG risks and opportunities, and so we're starting to see that in some areas of the world where I think we're going to start seeing a lot more uniform uh, disclosure, reporting, and which will probably uh, start uh, lending itself to kind of better and higher quality and more consistent ESG ratings. Uh, But but you're right. We we uh, I looked at a, a couple of different ratings providers last year in a paper that I wrote where we essentially built. The exact same investment strategy, uh, but we use two different uh, uh, ratings providers. So basically, what we did was we uh, uh, took the the top fifty percent of companies by ESG uh, score, and then just cap the portfolio, and then ran a simulation over about ten years to see, you know, uh, uh, how the, how similar the portfolios were, and you got fairly different results, both in terms of return. Um, uh, volatility was about the same, but the return was a couple percentage points different. Um, but then, you, when you looked at things like turnover and the top holdings of the portfolios, they were very different. Um, one portfolio had a, a high weighting in Wells Fargo, where the other portfolio excluded that company entirely. And then, vice versa, Facebook was rated really low by by that by the first company and was one of the top holdings in the second portfolio. And so. Um, yeah, with this was lack it the of,
0: governance? Was it the governance factor that Wells well that differentiated Wells Fargo? Because I know they've got some governance issues. Yes,
1: it was the <laughs> governance factor, and then on, on the Facebook side, it was is really just kind of dealing with issues of data privacy and like <laughs> Oh, that. really?
0: How surprising!
1: And and you know, in, it's it comes down to how is that treated in the methodology, and how much right. of a weight does that ESG data provider uh, put on one on one of those issues? Because they all determine. Uh, uh, make their own determinations on what's material and how much of should you weight that issue uh, in, in determining the overall ESG score. And that's that's where you can kind of get these very different results.
0: In, in terms of the amount of the difference in results, was it statistically significantly different between ratings providers? Like, do you have enough time in the data set to really draw meaningful conclusions? Because, you know, the, the, the reporting of these metrics hasn't really been around that long, has it?
1: yeah that's that's kind of the other the other issue is is data availability. Um, you know, if you get if you're lucky, you can get a, a ESG data set that goes back maybe a decade or a little longer. Right. And so obviously determining statistical significance off of ten years of data is, is it's nothing's gonna be statistically significant. yeah, because that starts after
0: the great financial yeah. <laughs> crisis trough. so everything's yeah. gonna look pretty good, but yeah okay so that 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 kind of brings me to another question, um which is. Is ESG a factor? And I, I want to explore this a little bit because we know that with, you know, the world, and I guess, I guess it was pre-1993, we lived in a Cap-M world, and then post-93, we we're kind of like in this Fama-French three-factor world. Um, and factor investing has risen in prominence, uh, including things like the market factor, the value, um, size, et cetera. What about ESG? Is ESG a factor in returns?
1: That's a, that's a great question. I think that's probably the question I get more uh, from uh, investors when, when we're talking about ESG than, than anything else is, you know, do I get uh, higher returns if I invest in ESG? And, and there's really a couple schools of thought here. I mean, there's the traditional academic view that, uh, you know, excluding stocks and constraining your universe uh, will lead to a lower return. Um, also that you know, bad ESG companies have to compensate investors willing to buy their stocks uh, with, with a higher cost of capital. And so you should expect as an ESG investor, you're going to get a lower return. And so uh, we tried to test the theory of uh, is ESG a factor? Does it provide a robust return premium over time? Um, what I did was we looked at uh, companies. Uh, I, I within the US and within Europe. So we took two sample, two different sets of samples, and uh, we created some long short strategies. So we went long the top 30% of companies by ESG score, short the bottom 30% of companies in our universe by ESG score. And we did the same thing for individual environmental, social, and governance scores. Try to see if we can determine if there's a factor return associated with any one of these themes or with the broad overall theme itself. Um, And what we found was uh, when we're doing that test, Again, nothing was statistically significant. We didn't really find alpha in, in, in these uh, in these tests. Now, again, it was a back test that went back about 10 years. So mm-hmm. um, I, I don't want to say definitively that ESG is not a factor, um, but uh, we didn't really find statistically significant alpha uh, running these tests. Um, also, within ESG, again, it's such a broad space. So even when I say we're going to test this, uh, uh, the environmental scene, you know, if we looked at maybe just something like carbon like emissions or certain other themes within environmental, maybe we could have found a data point that that might have provided something interesting. Um, but the one thing I, I think is important to think about is I don't think ESG needs to be a factor to be able to take advantage of it over the the coming decades. and and why why I say that is that I think ESG is going to be a, a powerful theme that might lead to rising valuations um, for good ESG companies and a higher return as a result, as more and more investors start investing in ESG strategies. Um, so you can kind of think of this as, a, as an opportunity, a thematic opportunity, more so than this is a robust premium that's going to deliver over the next you know, five decades. And, and the reason that I say that is um, you know, there's a lot of arguments around kind of what we're seeing within ESG investing. There's there's the what's called the stranded assets argument that a lot of these energy companies are going to have to take massive write downs, um, on, on their assets of these oil fields that, that aren't really going to might not be produced producing in a decade or so. Um, and we're starting to see that a little bit. Now we're starting to see some big oil companies starting to take write downs on, on some of their assets. Um, and then we're also seeing, uh, you know there's a bank of america study from 2019 that's that, that highlighted that 20 trillion in assets are poised to flow into esg funds over the next two decades um, driven by you know women and millennial investors which are increasingly making up a larger share of the investment pie um, we talked about greater regulations that are forcing kind of more flows into into the esg space um, and then if you look at fund flows you know 2020 was actually a record year for esg fund flows if you look at uh, in Europe 50 percent of all mutual fund and ETF flows were in ESG strategies um, in the US that was about 25 percent and in Canada that was about 10 percent um, and so we're, I think we're at this inflection point where there's just a lot of money flowing in these strategies um, there is one thing to consider though we talked about the the difference in, in ESG ratings and uh, in that paper we make a point my co-author actually made up came up with this line which I thought was hilarious but uh, they say a rising tide lifts all boats but all boats need to be in the same harbor and in the water at the same time. And with with ESG, when you have such different uh, views and different uh, on what ESG is, um, it, the question is: you know, will we be able to capitalize on this theme because of that?
0: Kind of tangentially, but uh, we talked about uh, whether or not ESG is a factor. Jury's out at this point. Um, the data doesn't support that right now. Um, we also, you mentioned something about you know thematic investing and how that's seen a rise in prominence. Are meme stocks a factor? Have you done any research on Wall <laughs> Street bets and whether or not they have now made a big enough an impact that you could statistically say that memes are a factor? Like, is there going to be that, a Fama of French? I don't know what they're up to now, five factors. So, will there be a sixth factor of meme stocks?
1: That, that's an interesting question. I wish I had an answer <laughs> for it. I think, uh, I don't know. I, I think, again, we talk about the data availability. I think uh, it's that's kind of been a thing for much shorter than even ESG investing has. So, right. Um, I think that the, the jury will be out on that one for, for a much longer time. But uh, <laughs> it's been uh, interesting over the past year uh, observing that and, and just watching. Well, you watching know, I just happen. saw
0: yesterday <laughs> that the latest meme stock is going to be Wendy's stock because <laughs> one of the reasons, here's the actual rationale one of the reasons is they literally sell chicken tendies. And I don't know if you're familiar with the the, the parlance in you know, the meme stock world, but tendies is a big thing. It just basically means gains. And so because they actually sell tendies, they're like, yeah, they should be a meme stock. And also, they're pretty active on Twitter, and they have yeah. a pretty good sense of humor with their Twitter account, so they become the next darling of, of the yeah. world. Um, and not that I'm and advocating buying you know deep out of the money call options, just <laughs> in case, but
1: Unfortunately, <laughs> at Research Affiliates, we're we're prohibited from buying individual stocks. It's our compliance group uh, prohibits it, so I can't take advantage of, of, of the Wendy's trend now.
0: Interesting. Are you <laughs> prohibited from buying individual crypto assets? Uh, no, not on
1: crypto assets. Just uh, since uh, most of our strategies are long-only equity indices, and and we know, you know, when we're rebalancing, I know what's what we're going to be rebalancing into, so we, we don't want to. Uh, even have the slightest appearance of some sort of conflict of interest, so
0: right, right. I can only buy. Are, index are you guys going to release a uh, a fundamental index of uh, crypto assets anytime soon? Is that on the horizon?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, it was a joke, we, but are you actually considering it? Well, so we have uh, one of our uh, senior advisors is a, is a is a professor by the name of Cam Harvey Campbell Harvey. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he's at Duke University, but uh, he's probably at the forefront of, of cryptocurrencies in terms of his research. And so, um, we've been discussing, you know, internally, you know, uh, we, we looking at the cryptocurrencies from a research perspective, no plans to launch an index at this time, but it's just, a, it's an interesting space. And, and, uh, we've got, uh, uh, we've got the, the expert in house. So it's uh, yeah. just something that we're, we're looking at right now.
0: Oh, well, maybe I'll have to book him for uh, a future episode. I'd love yeah. to, uh, to hear his thoughts. Um, okay. So, um, One of the things that I've been seeing a lot lately is that, you know, um, industry responds to demand and consumer preferences, and there has been a demand for ESG type of products and strategies. And so, as an example, you know, if you have, you know, turnkey portfolios as your product offering, and let's say you've got, I don't know, call it five for five different levels of risk. Now, all of a sudden, you've got 10 because you've got those same five different risk levels, but now you can get it with an ESG Mm -hmm. version of those portfolios. So here's the question. If I don't invest in an ESG portfolio, does that make me anti-ESG? Um,
1: That's an interesting question. I, I wouldn't say it makes you anti-ESG. Uh,
0: I don't feel I, like I, I'm
1: anti-ESG. I think, <laughs> I think one of the things to be cognizant of, and so this kind of going back to the ESG portfolios, and I'll, I'll bring it back to the, the non-ESG ones, is there there's a concept you need to look for when when, it, when investing in ESG and it's called greenwashing. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, um, it's a term that means that a company or an investment strategy is marketing itself as ESG when it's really not doing much at all. Um, and so given the growing popularity of ESG investing, a lot of funds are rebranding themselves as ESG, even though they're not, there might not be much going on under the hood uh, in, in regards to ESG. Um, there was actually a... Uh, article in Bloomberg that came out last month. It was called. Uh, I think it was called. Many ESG funds are are expensive S and P 500 indexers. It's a great article about this topic. Where basically they're looking at some of the top ESG uh, ETFs and saying these look exactly like the broad market index. What's uh, <laughs> what's going on here in terms of ESG? Well, and more the, profit. <laughs> yeah, and it's th- it's three times the expense ratio. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you know some ESG investors are essentially by buying those funds are just buying the broad market index. And so I think this kind of goes back to, like I said earlier, you got to do your homework and make sure that uh, you're not just buying, you know, the S and P 500 or or just the broad market index and and, and saying, okay, this is ESG, because uh, that may might make some ESG investors anti ESG.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to individual investors who are looking to say, hey, you know, I you know, I, I agree with the philosophy, but I don't want to pay more and then not get it. So, like you say, a closet indexing, greenwashed ESG yeah. uh, marketed uh, fund. So, what should an investor be looking for when um, thinking about um, adopting an ESG strategy? Um,
1: I think, first off, as I said earlier, is, is make sure you know what your ESG preferences are. Uh, you know. Do you want broad ESG? Do you want diversity? Do you want climate-related? Um, second, uh, when you're looking at the different funds available to you, uh, you know, look at you know what's the active share of this fund relative to the the benchmark. Um, you know, how different is it? If if they've got a correlation of 99, you're you're getting a market fund, you're getting a greenwash fund. Um, so it's really looking at the holdings, looking at how those holdings differ from the the broad market index benchmark too. Um, and I think that's that's really kind of where to start. Um, then also, it's kind of where do you go from there? I think typically when when investors think about ESG, they're thinking about equity strategies. Um, but uh, you know, do you want to try to get the similar exposures in the fixed income space? Um, you know, green bonds have been around for about 15 years now, and they're becoming an increasingly large part of the fixed income space, um, where it's basically you're 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 investing in bond issues that are specifically targeting, you know, uh, maybe a climate initiative or uh, some, some other type of initiative that, that has some sort of green or, or ESG outcome associated with it. Um, and so, again, finding out what your preferences are and then trying to find uh, a, a strategy that aligns with those preferences.
0: That's, that's interesting. So, <laughs> I'll use a humorous example. So, let's say I was with the Klan, which I'm not for the record. Well, let's yeah. say I was at the clan and I'm responsible for managing the pension fund. I don't know if they have one or not. But, yeah. And I said, hey, we, we like this idea of ESG, but not so much the S, <laughs> right? <laughs> we don't care about society. You know, we don't care about equality, but yeah, environment, great. Governance, yeah, we got a structure. So that's important to us. <laughs> so could, could we get like just the EG without the S? <laughs> that, that's, yeah. I, uh, I,
1: it, it's funny there, there are funds like that. I mean, uh, you, know, you, you can look at just environmentally focused funds. It's, it's a big thing. Actually, uh, one of the things that uh, probably the biggest space that we're working on right now with large pension plans are environmentally focused funds, right. uh, what we're calling climate transition strategies. Where you know, they're not excluding any companies based on kind of controversial activities, um, they're not concerned about the social or, or governance aspects within their equity investments, what they want to do is, is ensure that they're aligned with you know, something like the Paris Climate Accords, where the carbon intensity of the portfolio is going to be reduced on an annual basis, so by the time we get to 2015, um, the carbon intensity is you know, net neutral. Um, so that that's kind of really the the in terms of what's going on now in the ESG space and where I'm seeing the most interest, it's really the climate related side of of ESG investing.
0: And um you mentioned, you know, uh, considering ESG with respect to fixed income and green bonds, but what about other asset classes? Is it as as easy to come up with ESG strategies for something like commodities or private credit or private equity? because I imagine, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but with commodities, what could you do other than screen? Say, well, we don't want fossil fuels, but we're okay with gold. Like, yeah. what about those o- other asset classes?
1: Yeah, the commodity space is a little tricky. It's exactly kind of what you said is it's it's investing in commodities that that uh, uh, that are not you know harmful to ESG you know uh, objectives. Um, Also, you know, things like, you know, alternative energy, uh, solar, those things are starting to kind of uh, get a little bit bigger and can, I see kind of moving into the commodity space also. On the private equity side, it's a lot, it's a little bit easier. I think uh, as an investor on the private equity side, you can, uh, you know, you might, you might purchase companies with the, Specific objective of improving their ESG metrics, um, or of uh, investing in certain projects that might uh, yield you, yield a good return and might be positive uh, for the environment, or or something like that. Um, so it's uh, in, in the private equity space. It's something that's been going on for a while now. Uh, commodities is it's really hasn't really picked up yet. I think there's there's a way to go before we start seeing uh, a lot more interest in in commodities in the ESG space.
0: I was wondering if maybe. You tell us a little bit about, because I noticed I was just going on the website. It's been a while since I've visited the Research Affiliates website, but I see that you have like a a RAFI ESG. So um, can you first maybe give like a, a crash course in what fundamental indexing is as opposed to cap weighting and then explain how that applies to ESG?
1: Yeah. Um, so the RAFI fundamental index approach was something that we developed uh, back in 2004. So it's, it's been around for, for quite a while. And the main premise of fundamental indexing is that uh, markets are not efficient and they tend to mean revert over time. Uh, and so when you invest in something like the cap weighted index, which is uh, market capitalization weighted, which is just number of stocks outstanding times market price. Uh, you are systematically overweighting overvalued securities and underweighting undervalued securities. Uh, As a company becomes more expensive, and I think the the poster child for this was looking at the tech bubble, as a company becomes more expensive, it becomes a larger and larger portion of your overall index. Uh, So you look at the height of the tech bubble and 30% of your S&P 500 index was invested in tech stocks. And what happens is when the tech bubble crashes and when stock prices mean revert, you suffer significant uh, drawdowns because of that. Um, Fundamental indexing uh, breaks the link between uh, stock price and weight in your portfolio. Uh, And so in the fundamental index, we weight companies based on their fundamental measures of size. So we look at things like a company's sales, its cash flow, its dividends, its book value, uh, basically to create a composite weight based on company fundamental size. And we use that weight as a rebalancing anchor to trade against market price movements. So over the course of the year, as the price of a company becomes more expensive, at rebalance will actually, uh, rebalance back down. So trim the company's weight and capture those gains. As the company becomes cheaper and more attractive from a valuation perspective will rebalance into that company. And so it's really a contrarian, systematic buy low, sell high rebalancing process embedded within the index design. Um, and so that's Rafi fundamental indexing. Our expectation is that it adds about one and a half percent uh, uh, over the, the broad market index per year over long, long market cycles. And uh, we've seen that play out um, kind of in our live history as well in kind of the simulated history before we, we launched the strategy in 2004. Um, so that's fundamental indexing. And then, yeah, we do have ESG versions of, of RAFI fundamental index uh, available. Um, what we do there is essentially we integrate. Uh, so what we're doing is we're upweighting companies that rank well on an ESG perspective and downweighting companies, but we're also excluding certain companies. Um, basically, we exclude certain controversial industries. So uh, our RAF, our broad RAFI ESG index uh, excludes fossil fuel companies, gambling, uh, tobacco, um, and uh, controversial weapon companies. And then another thing we do that's pretty interesting is that we actually exclude... The bottom 10% of companies in our universe based on individual ESG score. And this actually helps to limit that greenwashing uh, effect that I talked about earlier. Uh, Essentially, when you look at certain companies, and uh, I'll I'll pick on the FANG stocks because they're a great example. Um, A lot of the FANG stocks like Facebook and Amazon and Alphabet have have pretty decent overall ESG scores because they typically have really high environmental scores. Uh, But they all have uh, poor social or governance scores. If you look at Facebook, for example, they typically fail a lot of governance screens or they have a very low governance rating. Um, Apple has some some uh, low, uh, typically ranks low on the social rating. Amazon typically ranks low on the social rating as well, um, and so when you include them in your index, they since they're such large companies, um, they usually take up a very large weight in your index, and that's why they that's why a lot of ESG funds look like the broad market index um, by excluding kind of the worst offenders in each category. Um, you end up uh, getting rid of a lot of these companies that might do well in a couple themes, but not in the third or fourth theme. Um, and so we exclude the companies that rank in the bottom 10% by environmental, social, governance. And then we have a couple additional screens called diversity and, and financial discipline um, uh, from the portfolio as well. And then from there, we basically uh, upweight companies that score well on the, from an overall ESG perspective and then downweight companies that, that, that score poorly.
0: Yeah, I think if anyone is interested in learning more, you can uh, check out Research Affiliates. But one more question before i turn the floor over to you for your commercial although that was part of it <laughs> i think um one more question for you this is totally off topic and i don't remember where this came into my head i don't know if it was someone who t- i don't know if it was maybe it was doug Gratz. i don't think he's with the company anymore but or maybe it was you i don't remember but i want you to confirm or deny the story or let me know if you know anything about it so I understand that, uh, for people who don't know, Jay Leno, former host of The Tonight Show, has this massive car collection, and it's so big that he has a, a mechanic, like a dedicated mechanic that just oversees his fleet, apparently for just four and a half days of the week, though. And that last half day is servicing someone's motorcycle fleet, and that person would be Rob Arnott, the, basically the head of research affiliates. Is that true? Did I make that uh, up? Why is that story in my head? I, I,
1: I'm I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I do know. <laughs> so Rob, Rob does have a fairly extensive motorcycle collection. Yeah, and like um, really so cool can, vintage motorcycles, yeah, right? Like I'm
0: am a, a motorcycler, So
1: yeah, I can confirm that. Um, yeah, I've I've. Uh, I've seen some of the motorcycles. He does ride them to the office on occasion. Oh, so cool. They're pretty impressive. Um, I, I I can't comment on the management of, of his fleet though. I, <laughs> maybe someone. Maybe you heard that story from someone else. But uh, maybe. Um, but uh, but yes, Rob does have a pretty extensive motorcycle.
0: Can project. you ask him that? Like, just flip him an email and say, "Hey, do you, is Jay Leno's mechanic your mechanic for your motorcycles?" <laughs> And he's either going to be like, uh, we made you a partner or yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, um, okay. All right. Now the floor is yours. Uh, whatever it is you want to communicate to listeners, if you want to promote your research, research affiliates, whatever it is, go to it, my man.
1: Yeah. I, if uh, If you're interested in learning more about uh, some of the research uh, that, that I talked about today, uh, you can find all of our research papers at, at researchaffiliates.com. Um, We're also on LinkedIn uh, under the same company name, Research Affiliates. Uh, We're on Twitter at uh, RA underscore insights. Um, So those are a few places you can go and and, uh, none of our research is under a paywall or or anything like that. It's all just freely available on our website. And uh, and, uh, yeah, please go visit the website and and, uh, and, uh, if you have any questions, there's there's an email box there. It's an info line and just shoot us an email.
0: Excellent. Uh, Ari, it's been really great chatting with you and catching up before we started recording this podcast. I'm so, so happy to see, you know, what's happened um, in the last 10 years since we last sort of connected, but uh, you yeah. um, have done some really great things. And uh, yeah, it's just so nice to, to hang with you.
1: Great. It was it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot, Bree. And uh, yeah, I had a, had a lot of fun.
0: If you want more personal finance content or you have questions for me or topic suggestions for the podcast, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram and ask away. It's the same handle in both cases at Preet Banerjee. I also have two YouTube channels you can subscribe to, my main channel, which covers personal finance and investing topics that are global in scope and a Canadian-specific channel as well. And that is it for this episode Thanks, as always, for listening.